0: I'm a big fan of rock documentaries and my interest goes far beyond the backstories or the music. What fascinates me is the journey. You know, as Brian Adams sings. I got my first real six string
1: it at the five and done, Played it till my fingers bled.
0: I want to go back to that summer 69 when when somebody just has imagination, they bring their friends together, they take over their parents' garage, they start imagining what it's like to be a rock star. And you look at documentaries like the Eagles and Tom Petty, and my belief is they should be studied by every business school in the world. Because every note you need to hit as a startup or even running a big business is played through an artist's attempt at the summit. Have their music heard, danced to, sung to. Find a place at the top of the charts. But to do so, they have to create something they love, but also something that there's a market for. And they have to navigate through such a changing world. I mean, overnight, the record industry collapsed when Stephen Jobs put 10,000 songs in your pocket. And today, Spotify puts a million more. These artists have to make tough talent decisions, including firing their best friend who was good enough to bang a drum beside him at the high school gym, but it isn't good enough to go any further. They have to prioritize their scarce resources. They have to battle their mental health as they live on the road and they chase their dreams. They have to make big decisions because along the way, as they start finding stardom, there's people that want a piece of it. And what they might give away today, they're going to regret the rest of their life. You know, there is a business to doing business, and it's a business that even impacts the arts. To commercialize and monetize and strategize.
2: You're listening to the iHeartRadio Canada Talk Network, and this is Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC.
0: My guest today is one of the smartest people in the music industry. Neil Dixon cut his teeth as a promoter, but for the past 40 years, he's sharpened them, being a contributor and then owning the Canadian Music Week. It's one of the most important music conferences in the world, it's a showcase for new talent, it's a meeting place for all who make their living in music and the radio industry, And in an industry that has been turned upside down with change on so many occasions, it's one of the few places where you can reflect on the past, you can come to terms with your present, and you can get excited about the future. Neil Dixon, welcome to Chatter That Matters.
1: Thank you very much, Tony. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: We're going to talk about your 40th anniversary and what that means. But before we get into the world you've created and the world you've helped create for so many artists, I want to first get back to your early days.
1: Where did you grow up? Well, I was born in Newcastle on Tyne in England, and uh, my parents immigrated to America when I was three. So we lived in uh, Delaware and Philadelphia, and I sort of became Americanized. We went back to England uh, uh, when I was about 11, and then they realized it wasn't the uh, the same place they remembered when they were young. So instead of going back to the U.S., they came to Canada. So I got here when I was probably 13.
0: Thirteen's a tough age to move and you've kind of packing, you know, different countries. What did you kind of do to find your place? What kind of music did you listen to? And how did you help sort of shape
1: the Neil Dixon of today back then? Well, my brother was a, a big music fan. And I, uh, you know, when I was really young, of course, I was influenced. I listened to all the stuff he was listening to. So. So this would have been late 50s, Elvis Presley, Billy Bill Haley in the Comets, um, Paul Anka, Bobby Darin, Everly Brothers. My dad was a music fan, too. He was more into Dean Martin and Pat Boone and Mitch Miller, but, you know, everybody to their own taste. Um, but I was surrounded by music when I was growing up. And so at, at a young age, I wanted to explore music for sure.
0: And you didn't pick up a six string like Brian Adams, but instead you played bass guitar for a band called Misty Blue. What kind of music did Misty Blue play?
1: It was uh, it was an R and B band, and uh, it was a high school band. Um, and it was I must admit it was pretty amateurish and, and basic, but at that time it was very exciting because I mean you're in your teens, uh, you're in a band, and you're you're playing on Friday night at the high school, so. It, it, was, it wasn't very long before I realized that I shouldn't be on the stage. Um, I like being on the stage, and uh, but I, I ended up booking the band, so I would put them in uh, other high schools, and um, then I you know put them in community centers and that sort of thing. But eventually, uh, the dates got bigger than the band. In other words, they weren't up to the caliber they, they should have been. Um, so I probably made a good decision, you know, getting out of that and being on the other side of the desk. But, um, but I never lost my uh, sort of uh, camaraderie with musicians and, and knowing, you know, getting inside their head and knowing what to think and trying to uh, live their dreams. So I think that stood me well going into business because I've got a sort of an artistic uh, bend to me. And, um, uh, and that certainly helped
0: me as you're listening to this, just really take in what Neil just said, you know, by getting inside their head, you know, as you start building your business or pursuing a career, I truly believe the people that are, that have the authenticity, that have the credibility or people that have lived the other person's journey. And that's a That's a great insight. You go back to England, you'd sort of take in your knapsack, this love of music. And when I understand you start booking some bigger acts, how did that come about?
1: Well, yeah, I still had no reputation and and no real experience other than my amateur experience. But um, when I got to college in London, um, I had a you know I still had my American accent and uh, and I knew a fair bit about music just from uh, you know um, buying records and and studying it. Um, so I signed up to become a, an, a student activity director to help you know. Organize different things. So it wasn't long before I was putting together dances and concerts. So, and at that time, London was a hotbed of independent music. So there were amazing bands at the time. So we booked uh, Small Faces, Jeff Beck, Manfred Mann, uh, Crazy World, Arthur Brown. Um, yeah, so there was, I mean, this was a time uh, when, uh, you know, James, Jimmy Hendrix and uh, Pink Floyd were, they wouldn't be playing schools at that point, but they were playing the Hammersmith Odeon, which was just down the street from the college. So, I mean, I got into meeting agents and, and promoters and record companies, and that was sort of my introduction as a student these activities and again i sort of bluffed my way in but i learned learned on the job
0: you know you're in art school and this is starting to happen around you and as you said it's a hotbed of independent music and you're starting to you know really get a sense of the excitement did art school become a prison you just wanted to get out and do it or did you find a way to balance both
1: <laughs> uh, as funny as you say that yeah i was uh, i was going to be an architect that's what i was in there for but the music really got got a hold of me. And um, uh, when I graduated and came back, I came back to Canada and, um, you know, I, I tried to get into uh, architecture as a profession, but that didn't last very long. I mean, and my heart wasn't into it. So uh, and when I was in England, one of the places we used to hang out with was was a a coffee house called the Troubadour. And it was sort of an, obviously a a hang for, and this we're talking late sixties. It was a hang for, you know, American draft dodgers and hippies and musicians. And uh, it was just kind of an amazing place. So, and and they had talent every night in the, in the back of the place. So uh, folk talent. So I thought, gee, maybe that's something I could do, open up a folk club in uh, Canada when I get back.
0: Hi, it's Tony Chapman, you're listening to Chatter That Matters. Neil Dixon does return to Canada in 1967, and both music and the entrepreneurial bug bites. He starts a coffee shop called Grumbles, but the artists that show up there are some of the biggest names in the world. People like Joni Mitchell, Ian and Sylvia, Gordon Lightfoot, Muddy Waters and more.
2: You're listening to Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC.
0: My guest today is Neil Dixon. He's a musician, a promoter, he's an entrepreneur, he's a wonderful father, and for the past 40 years, one of the top influencers in global music. Neil, in 1967, you're just talking about coming back to Canada, you opened a coffee shop on Jarvis Street in Toronto called Grumbles. Why the name Grumbles? And what did you know about running a coffee shop? Uh,
1: I knew nothing about running a coffee shop, but but, uh, I knew nothing about the music business either when I started, so that didn't deter me. It was called Grumbles. Like I say, it was based on this place that was in London. And that place had some real history. I mean, it was in a 16th century building. What I tried to do was recreate that. Obviously, we couldn't get that sort of ambience. But we found a lot of turn of the century advertising and antiques and, and uh, sort of like the general store look. And it really had a feel. And then it, it was almost like, you know, those, you see those movies where people sit in the, the front of a general store and drink coffee and, and, and whatnot. So it was sort of like that. And it wasn't very, and it got very popular very quickly because it was so unusual. It didn't have music to begin with. It didn't take long as it was like, okay, let's, let's on Friday and Saturday night, let's, let's put some music in here. So the first act I had in there was a group called Perth County Conspiracy. I don't know if you remember them, but... I'm a Montrealer, I don't. Well, they were really part of the uh, Stratford, London, Ontario theater crowd. When they weren't acting during the season, they, were, they had a band. And they had a huge following. So then we started booking different artists, and um, we had Bruce Coburn, Ian and Sylvia, Gordon Lightfoot, Buffy St. Marie, Baldy, Mary McLaughlin, Jim Croce, Randy Newman. And the the place got a real reputation. It got a reputation so much that people kind of compared it to uh, the Bluebird Cafe in Nashville. And we had a number of Nashville artists that wanted to play our coffee house, which it was actually quite small, like Skeeter Davis, Glenn Campbell, Kenny Rogers, Chris Christopherson, etc. It became a mixture of jazz, folk, country and then blues, too, because I was growing up and, and going to college in England. A lot of the bands at that time were mimicking American blues singers. So I'd be out shopping for their records on weekends. Anyway, so I started booking them. Muddy Waters, Howlin' Wolf, B.B. King, uh, John Lee Hooker. It became a, uh, an amazing kind of thing. And the lineups, we were small, but the lineups were down this corner and around, or down the street and around the corner. And it got the attention of Jarvis House, which was a pub, just a few doors north of where we were. And uh, the owner asked me to get involved with him because uh, he was going to be opening a new club called the El Combo. That sort of led me into um, getting to know him. That didn't open for a number of years. Um, I, I booked the, uh, the Jarvis house. But at that point, I wanted to get into the record business because I'd met every record promotion man and every president that had come to the club and every manager and every artist, every agent—you know what I mean. So I thought I got to find out how the record business worked. I took a job in 1972, I guess it was, at RCA Records.
0: And what did you learn at RCA? Because uh, you, I, you strike me as such an entrepreneur. I love what you say. You know, even I didn't know anything, but that, that never deterred me. Versus going in for a, a, a real job. How did that change your whole psychology and? What did you learn while you were there?
1: Well, because they knew who I was and my background, I sort of made my own hours and my own sort of job description. I mean, I was hired as a regional promotion man. I promoted to radio stations in Ontario. That's basically. And when the artists came to town, I would uh, chauffeur them around and hang out with them and take them to interviews and that kind of thing. What it did, it sort of gave me the, the really basics because from... From the outside, people don't know the difference between a record company and a publishing company. They don't know what a manager or an agent or a promoter do. So what happens is I wanted to live into all those areas and experience what is and, and make a decision for myself where I really wanted to go. I was there for a couple of years and I decided that what happened is we made we made sort of enough noise that I was hired by another company to do national promotion. But even doing that, I, you're right, I was an entrepreneur and I I felt that was tying my hands, although they did give me uh, quite a bit of rain because that's when I started booking the Alma Combo while I was working for the record companies.
0: How do you balance this sort of dust to dawn mentality of, you know, 24 hours, all the temptations that come with being at a club all night and stuff? How did you compartmentalize that so you could function or
1: was you just at an age where sleep didn't matter? No, you're in an age where sleep didn't matter. I, I mean, the excitement around it is more the fear of missing out. I was everywhere. <laughs> and, and from there, I ended up, ended up booking a lot of other clubs. I wasn't a, an official agent, but the Alma Combo, um, again, notoriety. It got me uh, a job at the, the Hook and Ladder Club, which was a more like a Vegas showroom. It looked like a Vegas-type room. But they brought in big acts. They brought me in as a buyer, so I got to deal with some of the biggest agents in uh, New York, and I met some buyers in Vegas, and Colonial Tavern, the jazz club, came after me, and they got me booking that club, and then the Cock Door, which was sort of a urban club on Young Street. I had the best time booking acts for that place. That was amazing.
0: Now, when you're doing all of this, you form a partnership with, I guess his name is Steve Propus. Steve,
1: yeah. I met him he was a manager of acts. He was a young guy too, various acts. So we got to talking and I just realized that what it's like to be on that side, because I've I'd sort of done self-management, but when you've got a, a group of bands, it's almost really is almost like being a tour director. You're you, There's a lot of logistics involved and obviously more logistics than one guy like me could handle. So, and we get along too. We really had a sort of a combined vision. So uh, we decided to partner up at that point.
0: And I understand one of your big breaks came from a bad break. You you two were managing a band with a young, brilliant musician called Rick Emmett. He leaves uh, to join a band called Triumph. You follow him. I have had Gilmore on my podcast. You're certainly in the Triumph documentary. You, You played a significant role. Gilmore credits a lot of their success in the early days to what you brought to the table. What do you think was the secret sauce?
1: Curiously enough, the band that Rick came from was was a uh, power trio called Act Three. They were starting to make a name for themselves. Um, again, I just I found them because I'm out. I was out at bars every night, so I started booking them. And I didn't know Gil at that point, and I didn't know Triumph at that point. I only heard about them when Rick handed in his notice, <laughs> and we didn't really have a, a signed agreement with them. It, it was. Uh, it was just a handshake. So that was another life lesson, get it in and writing. And, and then consequently, I met, I met Gil, and I guess Rick probably talked me up quite a bit. I think that's probably uh, the reason that I ended up managing Triumph. So we ended up uh, getting them an international deal through RCA in the States.
0: You know, one of the things he credits you with, Gil Moore credits with you, is that culture. You know, you were part of the glue that kept that band together as they started taking off. You know, as he said, we went from carrying our guitars into the bar to, you know, private jets in a nanosecond. And you were the one that kept them grounded. So you speak very highly of what Neil Dixon's, uh, the role you played in their early success.
1: Yeah, that's very nice. I mean, we were all friends when they broke up and they, they weren't talking to each other for a number of years. I met Gil in a coffee shop and we were talking about you should get over this animosity just get together even if you don't play together because you had so many great memories and 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 you made such a success it's a shame you guys can't enjoy that so i sort of steered them back between emails you know what i mean i was editing out the uh negative parts (laughs) basically they all got together again in a coffee shop to uh to sort of hash it out and then uh not quite the bands back together, but they were mates again, you know? So that, that was actually very satisfying.
0: Hi, this is Tony Chapman. When we come back, Neil Dixon creates a promotion company called Chart Toppers that not only plugs songs, but initiates sponsorships like the Coors Concert Series. Hi, it's Tony Chapman, host of Chatter That Matters presented by RBC. A big shout out to First Up with RBCX Music, that promotes emerging Canadian artists. They provide a platform for these artists to perform, to find new fans through media exposure, and access industry experts and mentors. RBC's enabling Canadian talent to continue to hone their craft, progress their careers, and follow their passions. Supporting Canadian artists matters to RBC.
2: You're listening to Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC.
0: Welcome back. My guest today is a star in the Mississauga Walk of Fame. Should be the Canada's Walk of Fame for all he's done for the music industry. You soon learn he has his fingerprints on creating a Canadian Music Week, one of the most influential music conferences in the world. This year, it celebrates its 40th anniversary. So, Neil, you have chart choppers and it's getting traction. You get a call, maybe even a cry from help, from the record, a music tip sheet, and they want to put on an annual convention to help build their circulation and their credibility. Tell me what you thought when you got that call, because that phone call has turned into your life's legacy.
1: Uh, Yeah, I did. And at the time, I didn't didn't think it would. I I thought it was just sort of another consulting gig. But the, the the nice part about it is that I, I I knew the people behind it and um, and they're quite trustworthy and and hardworking and everything. We decided to uh, you know go together in a partnership, and I had a little different view of what it should be, and they did too. Um, but they had the the, uh, the vehicle, which was the trade paper, to make it instantly. Uh, successful. In other words, uh, not necessarily monetarily successful, but instantly known and instantly recognizable as well, because of they could promote it in their to their readership. So, and I had been to countless uh, events around the world by then, and Canada didn't really have anything. Now, they wanted to primarily do more radio than records. And I was obviously Wanting to do more records and radio, so so we did a sort of a, a radio and records event. So it and the industry was small enough that it was a bit of a community back then, that you could do it. You know what I mean? They weren't so um, you know splintered off in their own worlds that they uh, they could enjoy a lot of the commonality of music. But as that sort of grew, I mean, one of the things I wanted to add was a festival. That wasn't in the original plan, so that took a lot of sort of work building a festival. And our partners it it wasn't sort of in their vision, you know what I mean? Sort of in my vision. And then came the internet, and um, they decided that what they wanted to go, get rid of the printed version of the magazine and go all digital, which was would have been a great idea, maybe five years or 10 years later, but it's like jumping on um, the metaverse a year ago. You know what I mean? Still not quite there. So, uh, So that's when we decided to part ways because I wanted to make this event more about music, and I changed the name from the record conference to the Canadian Music Week conference. And it would be a conference and a a showcase festival to help promote Canadian talent. Now, since then, we've had a lot of Canadians through there, for sure. Um, Hundreds of them, thousands of them. But um, it's it's gotten to be a sort of a international launching pad as well, because there's a number of acts that have been here and have played on stages. uh, And it's a chance to be seen by the industry. Um, and it's now become sort of a international stop in the, in the world, merry-go-round of events. So that's one of the things I'm most proud of.
0: I've seen you there. I've hosted the conference of being part of it. It is at such scale. And each year you seem to pick a different country. I remember the last time we were live, I think it was Poland. And you bring in, there's so much buzz. It's almost like an international film festival. What is a value to coming to your festival? If you're a record company, you're an artist, uh, a radio station, what do they want from you for investing their time and money
1: uh, at, at Canadian Music Week? It wouldn't have been called this before, but it is now. It's a, it's a hub. It's a hub to do business to business with not only um, people in this country, but people around the world. And this business is still very, and it really got hurt by uh, the pandemic because it's such a, a in person type business it's like it's more about who you know than what you know and uh, you know personality can go a long way and 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 making friends and developing relationships goes a long long way and they can last for years and they can pay off a dividend you never know about it's a place it's a meeting place for. The industry, uh, it's a, a 101 area for musicians or young people in in the profession uh, to learn as opposed to making mistakes. They can find out a lot of information, what to avoid and best practices. Networking, if you ask what's the reason people keep coming back and back, it's because of the networking and you just can't, you can't pick that up and it's, you know, you can make a lot of contacts over like i'd I'd always go to these events and come back with a briefcase full of business cards not quite the same thing nowadays but same idea yeah so it's a chance doesn't matter what level of business in and it's it's also camaraderie too it's seeing people you may do business with them if you're a manager and you book your band at at a venue in i don't know uh edmonton or or you know uh, you know, any, any anywhere, I guess, in the country. Well, those people more than likely are going to be in town. You're going to meet those people face to face. You're going to uh, develop, you know, a deeper relationship with them, and it just makes dealing with people later on the phone or by email a lot easier when you've done a you know had a beer with them in the bar at six o'clock.
0: You know, Neil, I can't think of an industry that's changed more than the music industry during the time you've been running. Canadian Music Week? I mean, MTV, hip-hop, iPod, iTunes, streamings, artists controlling their content, metaverse, holograms. I mean, how do you ensure your conference stays relevant as opposed to just relying on, you know, the past that you're still putting out, you're putting out thinking that's going to help artists find the audience they deserve in the future?
1: Well, like I say, we present everything that's new And we've been, uh, you know, the canary in the coal mine for a lot of startups uh, trying out different things. Um, Unfortunately, they all try and avoid paying artists, but uh, eventually when they get successful, that comes. Yeah, so we we present a lot of those startup businesses. Um, They want to get to the musicians. They want to have musicians on their boards. They want to sort of figure out, and and quite often uh, musicians themselves are, are, are usually the entrepreneurs that have come up with the idea to how to do things better. So, um yeah, so all all that stuff plays into what we do, but we we don't forget our basics because everybody has to start somewhere. We we still do the sort of uh uh you know, teaching of the basics, the basic skills you need, the understanding of the the business uh model underneath what you see from the outside. In other words, how does it work? What are the percentages? What's the profitability? What's the downsides? All those kinds of things. So mostly people in music just want to make music and have fun. But at some point running a business becomes, uh, obviously as you get older, it's hugely important. So, um, like I say, so we, we give, we've given a lot of instruction to new people and, and, uh, Every, uh, every time we, we have a show, an annual show, the first panel, we usually ask how many people are here for the first time, and a lot of hands go up. I mean, there's a lot of people that come back year after year, but there's a lot of people that have a need to know, and you can't learn everything in school. Um, sometimes you just have to uh, yeah, learn it from other professionals. What they've, they can tell you uh, a lot of information in a short period of time and save you a lot of heartache. So anyway, that's thats sort of uh, where it is. We're, we're definitely uh, on a leading front and we're definitely getting acts before they become popular. Hey y'all, welcome
0: to Canadian Music Week, CMW Virtual Voices series presented by RBC Emerging Artists Project. My name is Rudy Blair and I am honored to be your host for this amazing series. My name
2: is Marina Mulholland and I'm the Creative Culture Advisor at Music Canada. Uh, Before we begin and I introduce you to your panelists, I'd like to take a moment to acknowledge that we are on the traditional territory of many nations, including the Mississaugas of the Credit the Anishinaabe, the Chippewa, the ho Haudenosaunee, and the Wendat peoples. Hello, Miranda. Thank you for that wonderful, wonderful land acknowledgement. And hello, everyone out there in webisode land. I love that word, webisode.
0: My guest today is Neil Dixon. He's a musician, a promoter, he's an entrepreneur, and for the past 40 years, one of the top influencers in global music. Neil, you mentioned earlier that this is a very personal business, and the music industry got hit with a sledgehammer. We all got hit with it called the pandemic. But in your case, in their case, the stage went completely dark. What did you do as an entrepreneur to keep Canadian Music Week alive?
1: Under the circumstances, based on what your audience is, based on the limitations that this pandemic has posed on the industry, like what could you do? Well, we, we certainly couldn't do a conference. Well, we couldn't do a conference In person, but we could certainly do it virtually. So that's the first thing we thought of and we started to work towards. We didn't know a lot about virtual. We knew a lot about videos and, and, you know, making music videos and things, but um, to do a virtual conference was kind of new. The other thing we did was we had some good partners that stuck with us. We had uh, Jim Beam. We had developed a property for them, was proprietary, that it was a discovery vehicle where we work with radio stations across the country to find the next big thing, talent search. Uh, And not unlike, uh, you know, America's Got Talent or, you know, Canadian Idol or whatever, but it was strictly audio and it was on radio. We couldn't perform live. What happened is every city would do a playdown. I mean, when it was working, it was great because every city did a a local playdown and the radio station promoted it and filled it up with all their Fans. And then they they would vote on the best act. And those acts would come to Toronto and play in the Canadian Music Week Festival. And one winning act would be put on the Indies Awards as crowned the winner, if you will. In COVID times, we had to get inventive. So we, the clubs were closed. Recording studios were still open because they were, you could isolate. You could be six feet apart from the other musicians. There was no audience. You could even be in another room, but if you had cameras, you could record everything that went on and still present the various bands from the various cities. It was still based on radio discovery at the grassroots level, but it was turned over to the internet for people to vote on nationally. And believe it or not, that kept us alive and kept our staff going for two years, because without that, I'd I'd, I'd hate to think what might have happened. The other thing we did is we started a series called Virtual Voices, insights into the industry from the professionals themselves, whether they're musicians or people in the industry. That has been very successful, and that has been sponsored by your friends and ours, um, RBC. So RBC Music have an emerging developing artists program that this sort of plays right to their audience because it's everything these people need to know. That managed to take off during the pandemic and still going and I, th- I think we're just gonna keep going with it because it's a needed component and it's free. I think one of the, the, the main things, there's a, a barrier to entry monetarily to get into some of these schools with courses or there's a lot of people out there that don't have the, way, the wherewithal you know, sort of marginalized and uh, this way it's all free. There's no, there's no barrier to entry.
0: So as we look now approaching your 40th anniversary, when is the festival this year?
1: Festival is June 6th to 11th, and it takes place in Toronto.
0: I'm going to call this your comeback year. I mean, you're an entrepreneur. You seem, the first part of your life, you seem to be every six months changing, evolving, morphing. You've had your hand on the rudder for 40 years. And I see the respect you get when you walk the halls, the handshakes, the hugs, the legacy goes far beyond just putting on an event. But looking back, looking forward, how do you feel at this time in your life with what you've accomplished and what lies ahead?
1: Well, it is kind of a legacy. I'm, um, I'm quite proud of it. I, I didn't think it was going to last this long. I always felt that I was going to be off in different directions, but we stuck to it. When it's working, it's immensely enjoyable. I mean. Um, You get a lot of satisfaction out of working with people at the beginning of their career, watching them build, and then seeing where they end up. A lot of people that came to Canadian Music Week maybe for their first time 20 years ago are now running record companies or publishing companies. That's an amazing thing. And those people are are still friends. And yes, this is a comeback year. We purposefully downsized it so we didn't want to sort of get in any financial trouble. So we made sure that regardless of the attendance, that we've we've based it on good planning on protecting our downside. And from the reaction, I I think a lot of people are looking forward to uh, seeing each other in person.
0: Joining me now is Stephanie Lupinacci. She's a senior manager of Social Impact, RBC Emerging Artist. It's her second time on the show. Stephanie, welcome back.
2: Thank you for having me. Happy to be here.
0: Stephanie, Neil Dixon credits RBC for sponsoring Virtual Voices during the pandemic and how much it meant to provide artists with the skills that they need to improve not only their musicality, but their business of doing business. How did that sponsorship come about?
2: We recognized that there was a great synergy between what Canadian Music Week was doing and our RBC Emerging Artists uh, program. And we thought that at the time, if we really wanted to continue to uh, support and invest in budding musicians, especially during the pandemic, there was only one organization that we needed to partner with that we really hadn't had conversations with before. um, And that was with uh, Canadian Music Week. And so uh, we reached out to them just to talk about synergies and just to really understand what they were doing, how they were educating and how they were supporting the emerging talent community. And they brought to our attention virtual voices, which was a no-brainer for us to support. Uh, At that time, we had just come out of doing a bit of research and talking to artists and musicians within the industry to really understand the challenges that they were facing, um, what were some of the barriers, what were some of the gaps. And what really came out of it was that There was a real lack of business development and uh, knowledge for uh, artists um, to really help them understand the business of the arts.
0: And the Canadian Music Week is celebrating its 40th year. Will RBC be part of that?
2: We're absolutely continuing to part with them um, we're proud to stand with them as they celebrate this uh, momentous occasion um, we're going to be part of Canadian Music Week this year uh, the first week of June we're going to continue to support virtual voices uh, we're talking about having or hosting different types of panel discussions uh, with them to further educate the emerging talent community and look for other showcasing opportunities for uh, emerging musicians whether it, uh, industry-wide and even uh, some of our artists through our uh, RBCX Music First Up program as well so Let's
0: talk about RBCX uh, music in First Up. Now that concert venues are opening up, what can we expect from RBCX Music?
2: From an emerging artist standpoint, uh, what we are trying to do is actually look for more exposure opportunities for our RBC uh, First Up artists, as well as our other artists that are participating uh, in other programs that we support. Uh, so, for example, with the RBC Canadian Open, we've just announced a new concert series featuring Flow Rider and Room 5, and we're looking for ways to integrate some of those emerging talents into some of those concerts. We have RBC Blues Fest, Cavendish Beach Music Festival, Red Path Waterfront Festival. And in each of those festivals, um, not only has it become just a sponsorship, but we are integrating our emerging musicians to ensure they get platforms and they get in front of new and diverse audiences and more ample exposure. As we know, that's a key component to help bridge that gap from emerging to established, is being able to help them perform multiple times over and over again to varied audiences to really help them on their career trajectory. Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman has been a presentation of RBC. Fridays, join Tony Chapman for Chatter That Matters on the iHeartRadio Canada Talk Network.
0: It's Tony Chapman. Let's chat soon.